welcome to the preaching ministry of the Agape Baptist Church in George, South Africa. Good morning, church. It's a joy to be with you this morning. If you would, please turn with me to Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3. So far in our study through Genesis, we have focused our attention on the conditions of paradise. We've seen how a good creator, God, forms and fills a good world with special emphasis on the pinnacle of his creation, mankind. Man is given the perfect conditions to live in and thrive in. He's given food, water, beauty, purpose. We looked at the good work he was given. He's also given perfect relationships. He's given the woman and the ability to create more relationships through children. And he is given a perfect relationship with God. Finally, he's also given the opportunity to, opportunity to fear and know the Lord through the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. He had to choose to fear the Lord and obey Him. And this is a good gift for mankind to know and experience that. Adam and Eve are living in paradise, and that's where we've come so far. Chapter 2, verse 25 says that the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. This was complete innocence in body, mind, and heart. There was no ungodly cravings, imaginations, or even shame. There was no guilt. The closest thing we have to this today is a newborn baby because they feel no shame and possess no guile when they are born. And that's the closest thing we can imagine to this condition. However, in the garden, two fully grown, mature, and intelligent human beings displayed this kind of complete innocence without any shame or evil intent. When the Lord looked down on Adam and Eve, all he would see was the righteous, righteousness of man on the earth and that every thought of his heart was only good continually, which is contrasted later with the conditions before the fall, before the flood. And I suggest to you that Adam and Eve most likely continued in this condition for some time. We cannot fully know for sure how long Adam and Eve lived in the garden, but there was roughly a 100-year window of time in which Adam and Eve could have enjoyed the conditions of paradise before their fall into sin. This is where we pick up the story of redemption in Genesis 3. Adam and Eve have been living in the conditions of paradise, completely innocent before God, their creator, when a new character enters the scene and sows the seeds of rebellion. Let's read chapter 3, beginning in verse 1, going through verse 7. God's word says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. 
For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Let's go to the Lord in prayer, asking Him to to open His Word to us this morning. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank You for Your Word. I thank You that it is truth and it is life. I thank you that you have revealed yourself to mankind and to especially to your church. Lord, I pray that what you have revealed through the word, that this morning it would impact each one sitting here today. That we would never come to the word of God and leave the same way we came. But instead, that your word would accomplish its purpose. That it would draw your people closer to you in deeper, more passionate worship of you because you are worthy and you've revealed that to us in your word. Would you do this today? Amen. In the very first verse of chapter 3, we're introduced to a new character in the story, the serpent. We're not told a lot about this serpent. Just one sentence that tells us the serpent was more crafty, cunning, or clever than any other animal. And we are told that the serpent is one of the animals that the Lord God had made. And then we're also, we'll also see later in the account that the serpent could speak, that it apparently did not originally slither on the ground. We'll see that um, in a different week. And for some reason, this serpent is determined to convince Eve to rebel against God. Genesis doesn't come out and give us further details about this adversary. And with only this information, you may be left thinking that this is some intelligent, talking animal that just went rogue. But as the story of redemption, the Bible unfolds, we get more and more glimpses of the ongoing activity of a spiritual opponent of God's people. Humanity begins worshiping, shortly after the fall, they begin worshiping other gods who seem to have certain powers on the earth which lead men astray. These gods are not just the creations of superstitious or primitive people, but are in fact empowered by spiritual beings. We see an example of this in Exodus 7, when Moses goes before Pharaoh, showing the miraculous sign of a staff turning into a snake. But then Pharaoh goes and calls his sorcerers. And they also throw down their staves, and their staves also turn into snakes. Humans don't have this kind of power. Moses was empowered by God, we know that. But the sorcerers were empowered by a spiritual enemy of God's people. In 1 Corinthians 21, we read about, sorry, 1 Chronicles 21, they do look similar. Uh, We read about a spiritual adversary that incites or tempts David to disobey God. The word adversary is where we get the word the Satan or Satan. Satan means the adversary or the opponent. 
later in the book of Job, which honestly is, is actually one of the first books to be written. It's one of the oldest books in the Bible. We also read this about this spiritual being called Satan who dwells on the earth but also has access in he- to heaven. Let's look at just a section of Job 1 to get a sense of Satan's character, intent, and his purpose. In Job 1, verses 6-12, through 12, we read this. Now there was a day when the sons of God, which is referring to angelic beings, so the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. The Lord said to Satan, From where have you come? Satan answered the Lord and said, From going to and fro on the earth, and from walking up and down on it. And the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil? Then Satan answered the Lord and said, Does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land. But stretch out your hand and touch all that he has and he will curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your hand. Only against him do not stretch out your hand. So Satan went out from the presence of of the Lord. Satan then goes out and destroys Job's substantial physical possessions and kills all ten of Job's children, all for the sake of inciting or tempting God's servant Job to curse God to his face. That is his intent. However, Job does not curse God, and so the story will intensify if you could go on and read the story of Job. In that story, in the story of Job, Satan is depicted as dwelling on the earth, but still with access to heaven. He is not equal to God, but instead seems to have similar power and status to the created angelic beings. Satan, in this story, displays clear contempt for God through his vague answer, saying, I've been here and there, walking up and down. And most importantly, Satan proves true to his name by accusing Job of loving God's gifts, but not really loving God. Satan is depicted as the adversary, the accuser, a liar, a murderer, and the opponent of God's servants. But one of the most difficult facts about Satan for us to wrap our minds around is that Satan Satan is completely under God's sovereign control. Satan must request access to Job. Satan can only tempt and attack God's people to the extent that God permits him to do so. This is the case throughout Scripture, and in the New Testament we again see this pattern. Jesus tells Simon Peter before his denial of Christ and the crucifixion, before this, Jesus says to Simon in Luke 22, he says, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan Satan demanded to have you, that he may sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you, 
that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Satan had to, he must receive God's permission to attack God's people. And Satan can only do so to the extent that God permits. This may not sound all that comforting to you until you remember the promise of 1 Corinthians 10 verse 13, which says, no temptation has overtaken you. He's talking to the church. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful and He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, He will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. That's 1 Corinthians 10. No attack or temptation of the devil is so powerful that God's people are helpless before it. God has given His children the weapons for spiritual warfare so that they will be able to resist Satan, escape his snares, and endure any temptation. God has given us the spiritual weapons to accomplish this by His power in the Spirit to endure any temptation. The story of redemption is filled with depictions of an adversary. To the people of God. We read about an opponent, the tempter, the devil, an accuser, the deceiver, Beelzebub, which means Lord of flies, the prince of the power of the air, the prince of demons, the slanderer, the dragon. Some have questioned whether or not these titles refer to one spiritual being, and others have suggested that the snake in the garden was just a symbol of evil that grew in Adam and Eve's own heart. But throughout Scripture, it seems plain that there is a leader of the spiritual rebellion against God. And that this one spiritual being is the primary instigator of the evil within the good world that God made. We see this clearly in the very last book of the Bible where John is given a vision of the end of all rebellion. And at the center of this worldwide rebellion that we read about in Revelation is one spiritual being that is in opposition to God and His people. Revelation 12, verses 9 through 10 says this, And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. In this one passage, the leader and instigator of all rebellion is called the dragon. And to make sure that we all understand who this has been from the very beginning, John includes this being's most prominent names. He calls him that ancient serpent, which can be nothing other than a reference all the way back to Genesis 3 in the passage we just read. That ancient serpent. He calls him the devil. Satan, and the deceiver of the whole world, making it clear that this is one spiritual being who is the adversary. For this reason, Christians throughout church history have believed that Satan is a real spiritual being who has devoted his power and time to the destruction of God's people. And looking at the entire scripture, 
especially this passage we just read in Revelation 12, it becomes clear that the serpent in Genesis 3 was not simply a crafty or clever animal that went rogue trying to deceive Eve. It cannot be. Instead, the serpent in Genesis 3 is an ordinary animal that Satan, the enemy of God's people, possessed and controlled in order to deceive Eve. There was nothing evil about snakes in the garden. Everything that God created was good and was designed to serve Adam and Eve. Everything God made was good. But when Satan was permitted to enter the garden in order to test God's people, he chose to disguise himself in an animal that was subordinate to Eve, designed to serve Eve, and therefore an animal that should not have posed a threat to Eve, putting down her guard. Now you may be wondering, if everything that God created was good, then where did Satan come from? Where did this evil come from? The scriptures do not come right out and tell us. In fact, most of the knowledge we have about the history of angels and demons is found in prophecy and is sometimes debated. But briefly, this is what Christians have historically believed about the origin of Satan. In Isaiah 14, verse 13, there is a prophetic rebuke against the king of Babylon that seems to describe more than a mere man. It seems like he's speaking to more than just a mere man. The rebuke seems to penetrate past the human puppet and in fact strikes at Satan who is the puppet master of wicked rulers. Isaiah proclaims these words of rebuke saying, Isaiah 14, How you have, are fallen from heaven, O day star, son of the dawn. How you were cut down to the ground, you who laid the nations low. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high. I will sit in the mount of assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. But you are brought down to Sheol to the far reaches of the pit. Then... Ezekiel later seems to do the same thing, rebuking the satanic puppet master who is controlling the wicked king of Tyre. In Ezekiel 28, we read this prophetic rebuke. He says, You were the signet of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering. Sardius, topaz, diamond, beryl, onyx, jasper, sapphire, emerald, and carbuncle. And crafted in gold were your settings and your engravings. On the day you were created, they were prepared. You were an anointed guardian cherub. I placed you. You were on the holy mountain of God. In the midst of the stones of fire you walked. You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created till unrighteousness was found in you. In the abundance of your trade, you were filled with violence in your midst and you sinned. So I cast you as a profane thing from the mountain of God and I destroyed you, O guardian cherub, from the midst of the stones of fire. 
Your heart was proud because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom for the sake of your splendor. I cast you to the ground. These passages seem to be doing the same thing. Rebuking the day star, which is an angelic being who thought he would replace the Most High God, but was cast down. And rebuking the anointed guardian cherub, an angelic being who became proud and committed unrighteousness, being cast out of the mountain of God as a profane thing. Combine these passages with other ones like Luke 10 verse 18, where Jesus tells his disciples that he witnessed Satan fall like lightning from heaven. And Revelation 12 verse 4 which speaks of the great red dragon who swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth, speaking of when Satan in his rebellion drew one-third of the angelic host with him in his rebellion against God. And 1 Timothy 3.5, which warns believers about becoming puffed up with pride and falling into the same condemnation that the devil received for his pride. If we combine these passages, then we begin to understand the origin of Satan and his demonic army. Satan was originally created by God as the anointed guardian cherub, an angelic being that reflected the beauty of the creator God, elevated even among the other angels for the glory of God. But this elevated and beautiful cherub was not satisfied to forever be a servant of the Most High God. And ultimately, in his blind pride, he reached out his hand to grasp equality with God. And for this, the Creator God threw him down from heaven like a bolt of lightning, along with the other angels who were led astray into his rebellion. And now... The anointed cherub finds that his rebellion has not made him like God, like the Most High. But in reality, he has become as much unlike the Creator as any creature could be. He is now the Satan, the adversary and opponent of everything God loves. Because Satan is filled with hate, bitterness, and indignation for being cast down from his exalted position. This is the being that possessed a serpent in the garden, and who seeks out Eve because he hates most the creatures that God loves most. Because Satan cannot strike down God, he hopes to harm God by killing his earthly children. But we must ask the question, why would God permit this to happen? Why did God allow Satan to tempt Eve? We know that Satan is on a leash and cannot touch us or tempt us unless the Most High God allows the adversary to approach. We know this. So why did God permit Satan to deceive Eve? The answer to this question is ultimately the answer to the question of evil. Why did God permit evil in the world, in this world? 
Why did God create the anointed cherub if the sovereign, all-knowing, all-powerful God knew this cherub would rebel and become Satan, the adversary? Why permit Adam and Eve to plunge the whole world into sin? Why not destroy the devil before he had a chance to do any of this? Why allow 8,000 years of suffering? Why permit Satan to torture Job? Why, Why allow Simon Peter to be sifted like wheat, knowing that he would deny Jesus three times? Why permit the devil to persecute the church, murdering millions of Christians over 2,000 years? Why would God, who is sovereign over all things, visible and invisible, why would this God create the world fully knowing that the vast majority of humanity would die in unbelief and suffer eternally in the lake of fire? And finally, why would God design a world where the only sufficient sacrifice for sin was through the death of God's own Son. Why would God create this world this way? Why? There is only one biblical answer. For His glory. That is the only biblical answer. The story of redemption, the story of the Bible, brings God the greatest glory. The way that God designed the world, sovereignly permitting evil to be acted out by His creatures, this world brings God the greatest glory. No world of your or my imagination would bring God greater glory than the one He has designed. It is foolish to think that we could do a better job of designing or imagining a world that would bring Him more glory or that would be better. It is foolish for us to imagine that we could do that. Our God reigns in the heavens and He is ultimately concerned with putting on public display the beauty of His character through the world He has created. This is one way to define God's glory. It is putting on public display the beauty of God's character, who He is. This world in human history is the stage that God created so that He could be put on public display the wonders of who He is. And throughout human history, God's glory has been proclaimed. Throughout the Scriptures, His glory is proclaimed. Let's look at a couple passages that speak of God's glory as the ultimate purpose of the world. Genesis 1 verse 27 says this, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. In the very first chapter of the Bible, we see that man, mankind, is created in the image of God so that as mankind multiplied and filled the earth, there would be billions of image bearers who reflect the glory of God. That was the purpose of creating us in His image. It was not just a gift to us, it was for His glory on the earth. Isaiah 43, verses 6-7 through confirms this. The Lord says, I will say to the north, 
give up. And I will say to the south, do not withhold. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the ends of the earth. Everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. He's clearly saying he created mankind for his glory. Then Psalm 19 verse 1 tells us, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. The sun, moon, stars, and everything that fills the sky is shouting the glory of God. And so it should, because that is why God ultimately made it. Then Isaiah Isaiah 6 verse 3 describes the scene in heaven when the seraphim, angelic beings, praise God together in song. God is fulfilling his purposes in the earth and they are watching it and they exclaim this. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. The scriptures clearly declare that this world was created for the glory of God. But this still doesn't explain why God planned to permit evil to be acted out by his creatures. Why did God plan to permit evil to be acted out by his creatures? As we saw earlier, God created the anointed cherub fully knowing he would rebel and become Satan. And God created humanity fully knowing that we would rebel and that the vast majority of humanity would die in unbelief. Why did God, before the creation of the world, plan to permit evil in this world? I suggest the answer to this question is that the story of redemption brings God the greatest glory. The story of redemption brings God the greatest glory. The story of a perfect world and a sinless people, but a lying adversary the fall of mankind, then the promise of a redeemer who will redeem mankind and save them, the law as a guide and a restraint, but the inability for man to meet God's holiness, the failure of human prophets, priests, and kings, but then the coming of the promised redeemer who is no ordinary man but God's own son. Then humanity's rejection and crucifixion of the perfect one. But what they intended for evil, God intended for good, raising Jesus from the dead, vindicating his sacrifice as the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Then the joyful suffering of Christians, all for the spread of the Savior's fame. And finally, the second coming of the Son as King to cast all rebellion into the lake of fire and to receive the bride He purchased with His blood. Where we will all together as the church from every tribe, nation, and tongue will gather around the throne praising the glory of His grace. This story of redemption brings God the greatest glory. This was God's purpose in creating the world from the very beginning. 
and why he planned to permit evil to be acted out by his creatures. God designed this world to put on public display his character as a whole, every element of it. But in the story of redemption, there does seem to be one element of his character that he wanted to emphasize as the centerpiece of the story. God planned to display his glorious grace. God's character, now please don't misunderstand me, God's character as a whole, his entire being, his entire character is being put on display in the story of redemption. And I am not saying that one element of his character is greater or more powerful or stronger than the other. I am not saying that. But in this story, it does seem that God is wanting to put on display in a special way the glory of his grace. Let's look at a couple passages that lead to this conclusion. Ephesians verse 1, sorry, Ephesians chapter 1 verses 3 through 6 says this. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he speaking about God, even as God chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us for adoption to Himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of His will. And then verse 6 says this, summing it all up, to the praise of His glorious grace. To the praise of His glorious grace. He has done this. Before the foundation of the world, God chose to adopt a people for his name according to the purpose of his will, which was all to the praise of his glorious grace. 2 Timothy 1 verse 9 echoes this truth. 2 Timothy 1 9 says, God saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of His own purpose and grace, which He gave us in Christ before the ages began. Before the ages began. Before time began, God determined to send Christ Jesus to save His people from their sins, to put on public display the glory of His grace. Ephesians 2, verses 1 through 8, speaks of the future fulfillment of grace. Paul is speaking to the church, and he's telling them, he's showing them the development of God's grace. He says in Ephesians 2, verse 1, And you, speaking to the church, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. He is saying that we were all once followers and servants of the devil. Paul is saying this clearly. Among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, 
like the rest of mankind. Verse 4, But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, made us alive together in Christ. By grace you have been saved. Verse 6, And raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Verse 7, So that, this is the so that, so that in the coming ages He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For for by grace you have been saved through faith. God has made us alive together with Christ and saved us by His grace so that in the coming ages, speaking of eternity, so that throughout eternity we would be the living testimony of the immeasurable riches of His grace. This was His plan before light came into darkness, before He spoke the first word of creation. As we look further in Scripture, we even see that the wrath of God, even the wrath of God, magnifies His grace. Romans 9, verses 14 through 24, wades into the question, the very difficult question, of why God chooses to give His mercy, His grace, His promises, His word, in varying degrees to some people, while others are permitted to remain in rebellion. Verse 14 asks this question, What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. That's Paul's answer. By no means is God unjust. Injust. Goes on in verse 15. For God says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. Verse 17. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, this is God speaking to Pharaoh, verse 17. For this very purpose, I have raised you up that I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Verse 18. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills and he hardens whomever he wills. You will say then to me, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? Verse 20. But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Verse 21. Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use? and another for dishonorable use. What if God, this is verse 22, Romans 9, 22. What if God, desiring to show His wrath and to make known His power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath 
prepared for destruction. In order to make known, this is the why, verse 23, in order to make known the riches of His glory for vessels of mercy, which He has prepared beforehand for glory. Even us, he says, who are these vessels for mercy? He says in verse 24, even us whom he has called, not for the Jews only, but also for the Gentiles, all of us. This passage clearly depicts God as the potter and humanity as the clay which also happens to be the way that Genesis 2 speaks about the creation of man. This passage clearly states that the Creator, the potter, has the right to make vessels or to make beings for honorable use and others for dishonorable. dishonorable because He is the potter. We are the clay. Verse 22 teaches that God has not yet wiped out all rebellion because He has a greater plan to put on public display His power and wrath on the day of judgment. And then verse 23 tells us the why, the final why. Why has He done all of this? Verse 23 says, in order to make known or to put on public display the riches of His glory for vessels of mercy, which He, God, has prepared beforehand for glory. This is His purpose for the world. Even His wrath towards sin is so that the glory of His grace for those who find mercy in Him that that might be exalted even higher. His wrath exalts His glorious grace. This is the why He has created the world. Even the wrath of God towards sinners is designed to magnify the glorious grace of God towards those who are called according to His purpose. The chasm between His wrath and His grace is so wide that words fail to describe it and therefore displays His grace as all the more glorious. One of the primary reasons God's grace is so glorious is because all of us, those whom He has saved, all of us, deserve His wrath. Everyone. We are sinners by nature, meaning that we are born into Adam's rebellious seed and we have rebellion in us by nature. And we are rebels by choice. Every one of us has sinned against the holy God and has chosen our own way. There was nothing in us that deserved God's grace. Nothing. And if the choice had been left up to us on our own as to whether or not we would choose Jesus, whether or not we would choose Him or a Savior of our own making, if that was left up to us on our own, then we would 
always choose our own way. We would choose to either become our own Savior or to make our own Savior, define our own Savior. We would not choose this poor Jewish man who hung on a cross. We would not choose him. Which is evidenced throughout Scripture. That there is none who are righteous. No, not one. None seeks after God. There is no place in Christianity for spiritual pride. There is no room whatsoever. We all rightfully deserve the wrath of God against sinners, but because of the glorious grace of God, which He prepared before the creation of the world, because of that, we can now be eternal, living testimonies of His grace. This is why God created the world and planned to permit evil to be acted out by his creatures. Because this world and the story of redemption brings God the greatest glory. Now I realize that I read Genesis 1, I'm sorry, Genesis 3, verses 1 through 7. And I had every intent of getting there today. But I have not, and I am out of time. So next week, we will dive into the specifics of the anatomy of temptation and sin. But let's pray for now. Heavenly Father, I thank you for the gift of your word revealed to your people. Thank you, Father, for the gift of the Holy Spirit working in each one of your children, showing us the truth giving us joy in the truth, a joy that the world cannot understand because why would we rejoice in the cross, in a sacrificial lamb, in the blood, in the water that dripped from his side, in his flesh? Why would we gather and eat communion in remembrance of this? Why would we celebrate this grace? After all, the world, for the most part, thinks that we are good enough on our own. Lord, I thank you that you have revealed the truth to us, your children. I pray, Lord, that the Spirit of God would be working in each one's heart right now, revealing the truth of your word, drawing us closer to you as we celebrate your glorious grace towards your people. We love you. Amen. Amen.